0: Have you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like. I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I ask myself with stories, and, and, and I, I had remember going question.
1: through Novokov's archives. It a question mark in my Imagine head a I'm on your shoulder and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is. Uh, Carefully and Every single, single meticulously, piece about the whole
0: Bundy story was just so interesting. really weird one like, to write, because every time I to write story out, became I'm, a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the so story. Was the you, sense cannot, sense. you cannot,
1: you cannot do these stories. You or you how we uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences.
0: Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Sean Flynn. Flynn is the author of a new book, Why Peacocks, An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird. The book was published by Simon & Schuster. It went on sale today, May 11th. Flynn's book is certainly about peacocks, but also so much more. It's a reported memoir that examines his life as a reporter and how it has impacted his family and how the animals he takes care of fits into all that. He gives credit for this book idea to his editor, Sean Manning.
1: He said, uh, I remember mean, it was very clearly. He said, look, you spent 30 years flying around the world writing about death. And then you retreat to your miniature farm in North Carolina, where you hang out in a cage with your mythological, magical, immortal birds. There's a story in there. You need to figure out why you have these things.
0: Flynn has spent his life writing about traumatic events that involved other people. He won a National Magazine Award for his story, The Perfect Fire. The story is about six firefighters who died in a warehouse fire in Massachusetts. That story ran in July 2000 in Esquire. He's also written about Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old Cleveland boy who police killed in the city park and he's written about mass killings in New Zealand, and Norway. Now he's writing about himself.
1: Unnerving, and I know everyone says this, but somewhat terrifying. You know, there's a reason that I write about other people. Um, There's a lot of reasons. Um, Starting with, I I never found my life to be all that interesting. Um, But it's scary to, to, to put yourself out there on the page.
0: Flynn has written three books. He's a correspondent for GQ, He's won one National Magazine Award and been nominated two other times. Aside from the books and magazine work, Flynn has also written for television, film, and audio. As usual, I've put links to everything we talk about on the website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast, dot com. Sean, welcome to Gangry the podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, Why Peacocks, uh, which it goes on sale today, uh, uh, being uh, published by Simon and Schuster. To start things off, can you read like that very first uh, that very first page uh, of chapter one?
1: Sure. The reason to have a peacock, I would have thought, is self evident. When you suddenly and without any relevant experience or hint of prior interest come into possession of one, it is understandable that people would be curious as to why. Yet they present the question in a way that suggests they generally cannot see what should be plainly obvious. I'm sure it was from exasperation that George Mallory finally said he was climbing Mount Everest simply because it was there. So, because of feathers, that is the reason, and colors. Because a peacock is a wondrously improbable apparition ethereal, an avian experiment strayed from a misty place where pretty things are whispered about before being made fully real. Because looking at one makes you happy. Because Keats was right about truth and beauty. Also, because, in this particular instance anyway, Elvis too. And because the first gifts you give the woman you've already decided you want to marry are freighted with enormously high stakes. Some even that you can't possibly recognize until many years have passed and then one afternoon there are peacocks in the yard.
0: Thanks so much. Um, you know, uh, I, I just feel like I should say Bronwyn Dickey, who was on the show, um, and it, it feels like it was yesterday, but I think it was probably about two years ago uh, when she was on yeah. when, when she was on the show. She she sent me an email and said, "Hey, you should read this book and and, and talk to Sean." Uh, and and my first thought was when I saw the title, I was like. Peacocks? Um, but I read that, that first page, right? I read that first page, first page and a half or so, and I was hooked immediately. But then as I'm thinking, you know, I know I'm going to talk with you. I'm thinking, okay, what's my first question going to be? And I'm, I think the first question I want to ask is, why Peacocks? Um, you know, what, what made you think, that, I mean, why, why did you decide that this was something you wanted to write about?
1: I have to give full credit to a very smart editor, um, Sean Manning at Simon & Schuster. I've known Sean for a lot of years off and on. We'd never worked together, though. Um, I didn't buy the Peacocks uh, to write about them. In fact, I didn't even see it. Um, Sean and I went out to dinner in, I guess it would have been the fall of 2017. And I was I was sort of between projects. I had just finished uh, working on a different book. Um, and I was kicking around some magazine ideas. And Sean and I went out to dinner, and he asked what I'd been up to, and that's what I told him. And I said, so for the most part, I've just been hanging around the house taking care of my weird pets. And he asked what weird pets, um, and I didn't even lead with peacocks. Uh, I, I said, I've got this, this pug puppy that I'm very conflicted about, and I've got these peacocks, and I've got these chickens that I taught how to do tricks. And he interrupted me and said, wait, stop back up. You have peacocks. And I said, yeah, yeah, I got peacocks. And he asked me a whole bunch of questions, none of which I could really answer, um, except whether or not I liked them. And weirdly enough, I, I do like them. Um, these particular peacocks, it's, it's I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I like all peacocks. I like my peacocks. Um, anyways, he called me the next morning, very excited, and said, you'll never believe this, but nobody's ever written a book about peacocks. And I could completely believe that. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, th- th- there's been some self-published things, some picture books, some how to raise peacocks, that sort of stuff. Um, but what's Sean saw was the peacocks juxtaposed against the rest of my career? Um, he said, uh, I remember mean, it was very clearly. He said, Look, you spent 30 years flying around the world writing about death. And then you retreat to your miniature farm in North Carolina where you hang out in a cage with your mythological, magical, immortal birds. There's a story in there. You need to figure out why you have these things. Then um, that's where it started. And it took me a couple of years to figure it out.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. So it is the feathers. The the feathers, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, like, so how long had you had the peacocks before this conversation um, with your editor? Uh, Not long. Not long. Uh,
1: No, I got them in July of 2017, and that conversation would have been probably in October.
0: So, once he said, "Once he said you should, you should write a book about peacocks." Um, where did you start? What, what did you think when, when he said that?
1: (laughs) Um, well, first I I wasn't sure it was going to go anywhere and, and it took us a, uh, you know, a couple months to, to really sort of zero in on it. Um, it was sort of scattershot at the beginning. Um, there was a lot that I simply didn't know about peacocks. Um, you know, basic science stuff. Um, I started with, with, um, with some peacock people, frankly. Um, and, and I was, you know, there actually is something called the United Peafall Association. It's a little organization of peafall raisers razors and aficionados. Um, I started with them. I was very lucky in that, uh, this is very strange, but one of the world's best avian vets, um, lives about a mile and a half from me. Um, and he's a great guy and he's helped me through a lot of this. Um, and there are more people who own Peacocks than, than, than you would probably imagine. Um, I met a woman through my vet, uh, who lives not far from me, who's been raising birds for years. Um, and she was a lot of help beyond that. It was, it was a lot of reading, um, as with anything and a lot of looking around for, 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 um, for peacock stories. It's, you know, these birds are native to the subcontinent. Um, but they have been global citizens for eons at this point. I think eons, uh, thousands of years anyways. Um, and when you when you search around for stories about peacocks almost none of them are good um there, there's always uh, at best sort of a um uh a duality to them you know it, it's some people love the peacocks other people hate the peacocks for very valid reasons on both sides um so i i, I kept looking for those and trying to find the odd ones the uh, the ones that were a little bit out of place and you know i think i found a few of them <laughs> um and it was just sort of i i guess you know the, the same sort of steady research like you would do with any project. It, it it didn't start off as as any sort of lighthearted thing. I I really was trying to figure out why I have these and and what the point of them is, um, which was also another natural jumping off point when my wife asked me, "What are we supposed to do with these things?" And I honestly had no answer. Yeah.
0: Did you know uh, when you started that this would be in, in a lot of ways a, a kind of a combination memoir, reportage type piece? Um. Or yes. Did that. Can you talk about when I started
1: the book process? Yeah, Yeah. Um, there's not, um, you know, they're, they're, they're fascinating animals, but there's not a lot of narrative drive to a peacock. Um, you know, they don't do a whole lot except put up their feathers. Um, and I was really shifting at that point, um, from what I've been doing for years and years and years and years. Um, I was moving into some some other areas of work and starting to write about different things, um, and there probably was a reason why I got these, and it it took, you know, probably a good two years to figure that out. Um, but uh, yeah, we 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 knew pretty early on that it was going to be um uh, well we knew immediately that there would be some some memoir part to it. Yeah, um, just starting with with Sean Manning's basic you know basic thesis of, you know, you write about death and you hang out with immortal birds.
0: You have, you have this great line at the beginning of the acknowledgement section. So here I am jumping all the way from the beginning to the very end, um, which no, nobody who ever reads narratives should ever do, but this is outside the the narrative arc. Um, But it breaks down. I think what is really interesting, at least for me as somebody who studies narrative journalism, who teaches narrative journalism, um, but also regular journalism, right? Uh, or not? Not mm-hmm. not. Let me reframe that. Not regular journalism, but somebody who teaches narrative journalism, but has also reads a lot of memoir and has written a memoir. And that is that um, the fact that you spent your entire reporting career writing about other people, and now you are writing about yourself. So, I mean, what was yeah. that? What was that like?
1: Unnerving and I know everyone says this, but somewhat terrifying, you know, there's a reason that I write about other people. Um, there's a lot of reasons. Um, starting with, I, I never found my life to be all that interesting. Um, but it's scary to, to, to put yourself out there on the page. It's, I've always wondered, you know, when I talk to people, um, I've often wondered why they talk to me, you know, because I'm going to take details of their life and put them out there for mass consumption. Um, and when you do it to yourself, uh, I find that really sort of unnerving. Um, I tend to be pretty private. I, I don't have any social media. I don't tweet. Um, I have a Facebook page, which I guess terribly dates me. Um, but that's really it. <laughs> I tend to keep to myself. So, so, you know, being able to put this down on the page was was um, weirdly satisfying, uh, but a little nerve wracking too. It, it was nice to be working with a net. Um, you know, to 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 have Sean there uh waiting to catch me if I did something stupid. Um uh my wife Louise has always been a, a wonderful sounding board for this. Um she keeps me in line. So,
0: and, and so I had some help. And your and your wife is also a, a writer, right? So she is. Yep. How how is that helpful anytime you're working on, especially I mean, a big project?
1: <laughs> um you know, she lived this whole story too. Um so that's number one. That's where she was incredibly helpful. It's just, you know, helping me reconstruct things and reframe things. Um, and she's also very good at, at sort of steering me in the right direction. You know, it's, it's okay. You're writing about this, but you don't really mean that you mean this and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and she's just always been really, really good books aside. Um, she's, just brilliant with, with structure and tone and plotting. So, you know, it's, it's one reason I think we work so well together in a marriage is that we are able to work so well together, um, in our work.
0: Yeah. I have to say that I can't hear the chicks, uh, (laughs) in the Um, background. It's completely fine. I think it's fitting, uh, since we're um, talking about the peacock screaming yet. I've not heard the peacocks, but I'll be honest. I don't know if I would (laughs) know what I was hearing. Um,
1: uh, you'd hear something off and say, what's that? And then you know, (laughs) it's a peacock.
0: Then then maybe we'll get lucky and we'll hear that at some point in time. Um, you, uh, there's, there is a lot of reporting in this. It's not just memoir, right? Um, and there's this uh, great chapter, uh, within the book that I think what what was really was a great one that kind of showed what you were talking about earlier. It's either a love hate relationship with peacocks and that was (laughs) what was happening in Palos Verdes Peninsula near Los Angeles. Um, yeah. How did you learn about that? And what was that reporting trip like?
1: Oh, it was fantastic. Um, I went there twice uh, for that one. Um, I, I learned about it to just, boy, this, this always sounds, it always strikes me as sounding very lazy, but I guess we all do it now. I learned about it through Google. Uh, you know, I just, I went down a lot of rabbit holes trying to find these things um, and uh, stumbling across this, this, Peacock serial killer. Um, there was um, LA magazine had done a story on it that was that was really pretty terrific, um, and it just seemed it, it was because of what you just said. It it, it encapsulated that whole love hate relationship. You've got this small neighborhood where half the people love these peacocks, they're wonderful, and half the neighborhood can't stand these peacocks. And somebody's actually like sort of a sociopath is out there killing them, um, and a lot of them too, sixty uh, something. Um, it seems to have stopped. But there, the, um, what made it so great is uh, the SPCA LA has a real cop. I mean, he's not, he's not like a pretend animal cop. He's like a real cop with a badge and a gun, and he can arrest you. <laughs> um, and, and he was on this case for a couple of years trying to find this person uh, who was slaughtering these peacocks for a very good reason. I mean, and, and we get into the, I hope I made this clear in the book. It wasn't simply because peacocks need to be protected. Um, Captain Caesar Perea, that's his name. He says that, 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 uh, the, the animal cops jokingly refer to themselves as the pre-crime unit, because we're going to catch you before you start doing this stuff to people. Um, there's a pretty well-established connection between people who torture animals to death and then go on to kill people anyways. But yeah, it it was, um, so I, I went out there twice, um, and, you know, just met with the neighbors um, and who, who were fantastic. Um, Mary Glicksman and her mother, Kathy, had kept very detailed records of what bird was killed, where um, and how. Uh, so there's all that information. Captain Perea was more than generous from this time. Um, it all fell together pretty quickly.
0: I, I love to talk about reporting um, because I think that's where such the best narrative writing comes from. Uh, and I, I was reading the book, right. And it's in the chapter where, um, uh, there's going to be a huge cost involved of, of, um, uh, making, uh, helping Carl, one of your peacocks, right. <laughs> um, uh, who was yes. who having some health issues. Um, and you've got there, it's the dinner conversation yeah. with, with the family, right. <laughs> And there's, um, and I, your kids are great. They remind me of my own kids when they were that age. So Mm -hmm. four or five or six years ago, um, there's a lot of dialogue there. And the, the reporter in me is wondering, okay, was he taking notes uh, at the dinner table? Was he recording it? Um, and then, because obviously I think like when you're out in the field, you probably are taking notes. But is that happening at the dinner table? And I'm just curious about
1: about that. No, no, (laughs) not at all. But um, we did have. Both Louise and I had a very specific recollection of that conversation because um, of when it happened and just, you know, the issues with Carl um, had had. We remember that period very vividly um and we talked to the boys about it too it, it was you know it, it's nice having the people you're writing about live in the same house <laughs> we could say you know hey Emmett, do you remember this conversation and he's like oh yeah it, it's you know he didn't remember it um uh with the level of detail but he remembered us telling him about the orange cat and and what happened there and, and all that stuff um so no i was not taking notes um but there were some moments that stand out much like with with uh the other son in, in his bedroom um that was, I mean, I remember that one really clearly.
0: Yeah. When you, when you are out in the field though, um, more traditional reporting. Um, I, I love to ask this question too. How do you, do you record? Do you get I do transcripts? not? You do not. So how
1: are you? I do not. Um, although I might start now because now there's software that will transcribe that stuff for you. And that's really, so I, I, I rarely did it for two reasons. I wouldn't say never, rarely did it for two reasons. Um, one, uh, You'd have to go back and transcribe it all later and it made you very lazy in in your your contemporaneous note-taking you would just stop paying attention to what you should be paying attention to and just figure out oh, i'll get it off the tape later um and the other reason is um you know the, the word interview is, is 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 has some connotations to it and i generally don't interview people we talk and we have conversations and and they're, they're long and they're rambling and You know, something that might be be a paragraph anecdote in a magazine story that might have taken three hours to you know gradually piece together just through a conversation, but as soon as you take out a recording device, the person you're with is no longer having a conversation. They're being interviewed. They're aware of it, and their whole demeanor changes.
0: The um, what were uh, what were some of the the bigger challenges for you uh, working on this book, and anything that stumped you as you were working as you were writing through?
1: The hardest part was recreating, and and not, not just recreating, but but dredging up and mucking about in the effect that that what I've been doing had had on my kids, or might have had on my kids. Um, things that 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 I hadn't really been fully aware of. I mean, I don't think I've done any lasting damage here, <laughs> um, but. You know, you you compartmentalize a lot over the years um, and having to start picking apart those compartments and realizing that, okay, this part wasn't as compartmentalized as I thought it was. um, That was really the hardest part. Uh, The reporting. um, Wasn't. For the most part, it wasn't difficult. It, it was kind of fun. Um, the, the, it was a different kind. I mean, finding out uh, who this Spalding Peacock is named after, which I can't believe nobody's ever done before, um, was just down a very long rabbit hole, but very satisfying. The hardest part of the actual reporting um, is telling people you're doing a book about peacocks. Uh, they, they think you're insane, um, or they think that, that you're you know, some middle-aged guy with a bunch of peacock photos and he's gonna self-publish something. Nobody takes you seriously. I'm doing a book about peacocks. Oh, sure you are, buddy. Um, so that was having to to make repeated phone calls at times and trying to just nudge over the hump. It was always great when 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 some people were just delighted by the concept, like uh, um, Lisa Schubert at St. John and the Vine was just immediately, she was like, oh my God, a book about peacocks, you should come here. Um, she was great. Uh, but for the most part, you got sort of a, uh, a second look from folks, which I, I referenced that in the book. One of one of the uh, one of the kinder uh, curious looks I got. So.
0: <laughs> you know, th- and this is one thing that I didn't realize until uh, until I read the book is just how many peacocks or peafowl. I apologize. How many peafowl?
1: I hate that word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how many peafowl peacocks are are out there?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, these things are like pigeons, um, big, beautiful pigeons. Um, yeah, they're everywhere. And, but it's, what's so strange is, is they're everywhere. And yet everyone is always amazed. Um, uh, you know, people find out that I have peacocks. They're like, wow, you have peacocks. That is so exotic. Like I I know of a half dozen other people in Durham, North Carolina who have peacocks. Um, (laughs) I can buy this, this, um, uh, uh, exotic Spalding hen for Fifty bucks, You know, it's, it's um, yeah, there's a lot of peacocks out there and in places that you would never really think. Um, they, they are very hardy. They survive cold weather just fine. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them.
0: I've been talking with Sean Flynn. He's the author of Why Peacocks? An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird. The book went on sale today, May 11th. We're going to take a short break, We'll be back in one minute. This is Gangry the Podcast.
1: Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the digital journalism and
0: sports media programs at Fairfield University. Digital journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling, to podcasting, to narrative journalism, and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs,
1: visit Dot Fairfield dot edu.
0: Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. I'm talking with Sean Flynn. He's a National Magazine Award winner and the author of Why Peacocks? An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird. The book went on sale today, May 11th. Let's go back in time, and and I'm curious as to like when did you know that you wanted to be a reporter?
1: You know, I I worked for you know there was some high school newspaper stuff, but when I was in college, this is going to sound really awful, but it was never actually a conscious decision. Um, When I was in college, my freshman year, I was lonely and I was homesick, and I didn't want to join a fraternity, so I joined the student paper. Um, We had an independent daily at Ohio University, and it was great. And I just I did that for four years, and um, I graduated on a Saturday and had a job in Marietta, Ohio on a Monday, and people have been hiring me since. So it's just sort of, it was almost like the path of least resistance. I got very lucky. And I came into the the industry um, at a time when you could still go from a small paper to a bigger paper to a bigger paper to, to, there was like a a natural ecosystem that you could climb your way up through. Um, so yeah, uh, it's all I've ever done professionally.
0: Yeah. And oh, and Ohio University also is one of the journalism schools in
1: yeah. the country,
0: right? And you're not. It, the, it was great. And you're not the first AU grad to be on Gangry the podcast, or OU grad to be on Gangry the podcast. So, um,
1: who else did you have? Uh, Jeremy I haven't Mar-
0: seen your whole roster. Uh, Jeremy Markovich was on the show. Um, okay, way back when it might have been episode fifteen or something. So back in twenty thirteen. When he did the story on Dick Trickle for SB Nation Longform, um, so Jeremy
1: Markovich from from North Carolina.
0: Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. Oh my God, small world! My wife worked with him. Um, <laughs> the, at, at, <laughs> I know Jeremy. Yeah, we talked.
0: Yes. we were both uh, writing for SB Nation Longform at the time, and and he had exactly. that that Dick Trickle piece, which you know, yeah. as the person who grew up loving NASCAR in Ohio and you know, I had to have him on the show. So, and, and so, Oh, you, anything Ohio related is going to stand out to me. So
1: Good. Good. Yeah. Jeremy's a great guy.
0: What did you, uh, working at small newspapers, what, what skills did you learn there that, that you're still using today?
1: Oh, um, <laughs> uh, really basic ones, like pick up the phone and knock on the door. It's, it's, a lot of us, um, a lot of reporters, at least in my experience, tend to be a little bit shy. Um, and and it sort of forces us uh, to get out there and do the work. And there's always that other phone call you can make. There's always that other door you can knock on. You can really have, it, it's almost impossible to have too much information. Um, so almost in opposition to that, um, when I was at a small newspaper, I think there were four of us who were news reporters we had to cover a lot of stuff um, and you didn't get to linger as much as you wanted to. So you learn to be fast and you learn to be accurate. And weirdly enough, you, 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 I learned this when I was working on, um, one of my first jobs was to go to the courthouse every morning and look at the, uh, the court docket and see who was arrested and who filed what lawsuit who was getting divorced. And it was just, you know, like, like sports agate, you know, just, just little, little lines written throughout the paper there. Um, But you found out just from that, from the phone calls you would get, that these were real people going through something really traumatic and didn't like having their name in the paper and why are you such a prick and and all that stuff. Um, It was just it it was a real good reminder that we are always writing about real people um, who, for the most part, have gotten dragged into something they didn't want to get dragged into, at least the sort of reporting I do. Um, So it was it's very helpful to keep that in mind that these, these, these aren't just characters that we get to draw in our, in our own imagination.
0: Yeah. You, um, how did you make the jump then from, from newspapers to the magazine world?
1: Uh, again, that, that ecosystem. Um, so I went from a small Dale in Ohio to a weekly in Boston. I went to the Boston Phoenix, the late lamented, great Boston Phoenix, um, where I just had great editors there. Um, And I was at the Phoenix for, that's where I really learned to write long stories. Um, And I was there for maybe four years or so. And then I went briefly to Boston Magazine, very briefly. Um, And then went to the Boston Herald, where I was back as a a daily reporter doing comps and courts and that sort of stuff. Um, And then back to Boston Magazine. Um, And that was, you know, I was there for three or four years writing, you know, long stories again. Um, And then I just got, really really lucky um, there was a young editor at Random House named Andy Ward a uh, very young editor like most young editors he needs a stable of writers and he knew someone who knew someone who knew me and he called me one day out of the blue and said hey we should do something I've read your stuff um, and it took us about a year uh, before we finally found something um, and then we're just sort of off to the races from there and when Andy went to GQ and took me with him over there and And I was at GQ for, I'm still at GQ uh, for, I don't know, I guess it's been 18 years now. It's been a long time. Yeah. So a a lot of luck that there was, I was in the right place at the right time when Andy, and I picked up the phone when Andy called.
0: Yeah. Right, right. So, I mean, so 18 years uh, at GQ, but also more than that in in magazines in general. Um, How has, I mean, and not necessarily we don't, you don't have to talk about the business end of it, which has obviously changed insane in in, uh, an amount that we probably couldn't even (laughs) scratch the surface of, but how does the field for, for good long form narrative journalism change for,
1: for that type of stuff?
0: And did that have an impact on you wanting to go ahead and and do a book?
1: Um, So the business side is the root cause of the editorial side. Um, The thing about, Good, long journalism is it costs money. Um, you know you you have to send people places, and um, they have to be able to invest the time in it, and they have to be able to make a living um, you know and, and I made a decent middle class income um, doing which was frankly the greatest job in the world. you know I, I really flew to all sorts of awesome places to write about very terrible things, um, but uh, yeah, I got to fly around the world writing about stuff which is great um but then when the business side collapsed so did the editorial side um it sounds like i mean there are still a lot of people working really hard to do great work but they're doing it with very limited resources um and you have editors who are taking on eight times more work than they they were taking on three years ago even and you know this started 10 years ago and Every time you think it couldn't get worse, it got worse. Um it's just they're they're cutting bone now. You know, it's 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 the fat was long gone and then they stripped the meat off and, and now it's just bones. It's it's really, really hard. So it's it's um trying to to there's a few places. Um I think every editor is trying to treat their writers as best as possible. Um, but they just don't have any resources to work with. So
0: so you, you won a national magazine award in 2000 for, um, a piece, I think it was an Esquire, right? Uh, the perfect yeah, fire Esquire piece. Um, and that was about six firefighters who died in a, in a warehouse blaze in Worcester, Massachusetts. You mentioned in the yeah. book, uh, and I think this is, um, that section when you referenced worrying about how much your job as a reporter was, was impacting your, your kids. Um, uh, you went to Norway, um yeah. uh you know in the year after the mass the mass killings there um you, you've mentioned this a couple of that you do these traumatic types of stories. Yeah. Um why?
1: You know I I I I struggled with that when I was doing the book to see if I could get an answer to that. Um and I still think about it quite a bit. And I don't have a satisfying answer um for someone on the outside. Um Crime stories in general tend to to carry with them just a lot of natural drama. Um, these these really horrific ones. I was just good at it. Um, and I know this sounds terrible, but but people talk to me um, and and um, i like to believe it's because I'm empathetic and I'm patient and and. You know, I, I, that I really am trying to help or, or at least trying not to hurt to make anything worse. Um, and they just kept happening. And, and but frankly, it's, it's gotten to you know it's weird. I, I've gotten to go to these lovely places for like I said terrible things. I, I went to Oslo, wonderful place, loved Oslo, for eighty six people who were murdered by one guy. Um, and I went to New Zealand for another mass shooting. There's, um, it's gotten to the point where 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 all of these. What what made those two unique is that they weren't here, <laughs> you know they they weren't in America, um, because you start to. You know, I did the the Orlando shooting, um, and it was sort of a challenge of okay, how are we going to do this differently? You know, instead of another TikTok of, "Hey, this horrible thing happened." What are we going to do differently here? So that's actually been the challenge of it. Anyway, so so but back to your question, it was never by design. It's just something that, that, that I sort of it sounds grotesque, but I sort of had an act for. Um,
0: do you remember yeah. what the Do you remember what the first one that fits into that? kind of category was
1: yes um a woman um in vermont uh who shot her infant son i mean like really infant like three or four weeks old um shot him in the chest uh and then shot herself in the chest um and missed by you know less than a millimeter uh just blowing her heart apart um she was I I talked to the detectives. I started with the the detectives. That's how I came across a story. It's a very small brief somewhere where it was just she's going to walk. She's going to just go away. And I thought that's strange. Um, But I called this small town detective in Vermont and he was like, yeah, she's I feel terrible for this woman. Um, And she suffered from postpartum psychosis. It's rare. Um, Postpartum depression is not all that rare anymore, but postpartum psychosis is is quite rare. she was briefly completely out of touch with reality, just utterly detached from it. Um and and it was temporary and it was, you know, e- even the prosecution agreed with this that, that it was temporary and it's you know, shouldn't have another kid and didn't have the, the hormonal surgery she was going through uh uh postpartum. Um she would never go through this again. Just a a lovely woman, just really, really sweet. And and you know she shot her kid in the chest um so yeah i, I remember that very, very clearly I, we sat with her for hours um and she walked us through every step of it and it was terrible
0: yeah you you mentioned um empathy and that's something that um john woodrow cox who was on the show about a year not even a year ago from the washington post who basically is uh, he just had the book come out about um how children are impacted by gun violence uh, mm-hmm. in this country. And he talked about empathy, Um, I've talked with Jim Sheeler, uh, you know, uh, who's at Case Western Reserve now. And he talks about empathy. You know, he won the Pulitzer in 20, 2006 for final salute. And, and, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder if, are we talking about that finally more now as journalists than we used to or no?
1: I don't know and I say I don't know because I'm sort of a hermit. Um, you know, I don't have any of the social media and I live in Durham, North Carolina. Um, you know, it's it's uh, before this book, I didn't really work at home either. I i, I mean, my office is at home, but the stories were always somewhere else. Um, I would hope so. Uh, because it's it's there, there, there was always in a lot of newsrooms, um, that thread of let's move this stuff along. You know, it's, it's we don't have time for empathy, let's 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 go, let's go, let's go. Um and certainly when journalists get into a pack oh god we're awful <laughs> you know it's like a feeding frenzy it's terrible um so individually we might all be trying to be empathetic but oh god we're terrible in, in in a group um but i would hope so because it's 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 um it's when we lose touch of when we lose touch with people when, when, when we lose track of the fact that we we are writing about real people um we're right you know everybody is somebody's father and somebody's son and somebody's daughter and somebody's sister um and we do better work when we keep that in mind
0: you you just said you were a, her- a hermit but you had a lot of names in in the acknowledgement section of a lot of writers right <laughs> who i know uh and some of whom i've talked with um we always think of writing as a solitary type of thing right yep. um But again, like within your acknowledgement section, you mentioned several people. How, how do you, um, take advantage of that kind of community? How do they help you when you're working on a book, obviously, but even, um, even magazine pieces,
1: they help me in ways that they're not quite aware of. Um, at least two of those people listening to the acknowledgements have said, wow, that's very generous, but there's no way I should be in there. Um. I don't spend a lot of time talking to other writers about writing. Um, in fact, there is nothing more tedious than writers sitting around talking about writing. Um, it's like, you know, this This is my job. And I don't even, I don't physically like writing. The, the actual act of writing, I kind of hate it. Um, but all of those people who, in addition to just being really great people and friends, um, have all said something at like just the right time. And they probably don't even know they said it. But they said the right thing at the right time, um, only because they 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 have all been in, in the same position at some point or another. And and even sometimes when when I didn't see it myself, they could see something. And it was, you know, a passing phrase, you know, a quick word here and there. And it makes all the difference in the world just to 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 get yourself get yourself out of your own head, um and and uh realize that that it's that one, you're not the only person who does this, um, and that you know, deadlines are going to come and go and, and life will go on. So yeah, they've all been very helpful at at, at different points.
0: Well, well, I, I apologize because here we are writers sitting around talking about writing. So.
1: <laughs> this is different though, because this is, this is, this is planned and targeted. Um, it's it, anyone listening knows what we're going to be talking about, but it's, it's um, yeah. We used to get together. A bunch of us used to get together like, like I don't know, every month or so. Um, and we, almost scrupulously avoided talking about work because it, it, it just got exhausting sometimes. Now we, we will have professional conversations on again, you know, like Bronwyn will call me and say, Hey, I'm working on this. Do you have any thoughts? That sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Sean, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been so great talking with you. Why peacocks? An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird. It goes on sale today. Uh, So everyone should check it out. Thanks again, Sean.
1: Excellent, Matt. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it.
0: I've been talking with Sean Flynn. Flynn is the author of Why Peacocks? An Unlikely Search for Meaning in the World's Most Magnificent Bird. The book went on sale today. May 11th. As usual, I've put links to everything we talk about on the website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, the podcast, dot com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry, that's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.